Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the last event of this wonderful afternoon of sidewalk storytelling. And that is what Lit Live is all about. My name is Sarah McNeil. I'm the producer and presenter of Lit Live, and I'm delighted to welcome you here. First, before we start, I'd like to acknowledge this land's original storytellers. Um, and that we stand on Wujak Noongar Buja. We acknowledge the sovereign owners of this place and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'd also like to thank our very generous sponsors for making sidewalks possible. City of Perth, Rayner Real Estate, Aspen Corporate Financial Planning, who doesn't need that right now, and Herbert Smith Freehills. Thank you also to the Alex Hotel for giving this fantastic venue. What a gorgeous space to ha sit and have stories uh, told, to hear stories, and a bar just downstairs. Um, tonight, we are going to celebrate emerging talent, both in writing and in performance. Joining me are two graduates from the WA Academy of Performing Arts. Grace Chow, who is just about to, or has just, is in the process of graduating from the Performing Arts program. And Darius Williams, who is about to graduate from the acting program. Together, we're going to read five stories from two collections that have been recently published by the Centre for Stories. Wave After Wave, writers from the Indian Ocean, and To Hold the Clouds, emerging writers from Perth. Both collections are the result of a mentoring project run by the Centre for Stories, and both are inventive, thoughtful, optimistic, but more importantly, multicultural, a true reflection of this part of the world. They touch on themes of heritage, loss, identity, and the meaning of home across fiction, memoir, and poetry. We're going to start tonight with Grace reading Gaming the Skin by Rehanati A. Jahil. Born in Malaysia to Indonesian parents, Rehanati believes that sharing her writing is akin to sharing a part of her soul. Please welcome Grace. It's all rather tall for me. I am, thank you. This is Gaming the Skin by Ray Hanati A. Jalil. In my 20s, I was quite active in the community sector, volunteering for organisations like the Muslim Women's Support Centre of WA. I once attended a meeting to meet and greet the new minister whose portfolio was to look after multicultural interests. I've always loved networking, so although I came alone, I navigated comfortably between the small groups of people who chatted over drinks in canapes under the warm lights and ambience. Every so often, I would meet the gaze of someone in a cluster and share a smile, which had the welcomed effect of drawing me into their conversation. I found myself talking to Martha, a middle-aged woman who worked in government, 
At the beginning of our light-hearted discussion, she asked me a question I had grown used to. The answer felt like a stand-up skit you've told more than once but must deliver with the same enthusiasm. Where were you from? She asked, her tone neutral. Well, I took a deep breath. I was born in Malaysia, my parents are from Indonesia, but I've been living here since I was three, so I'm confused, <laughs> I said with a practiced laugh. She chuckled quietly. And you? I asked. Martha's face, as if the two words were a slap. My question, her question, so unexpected. What do you mean? She asked with a blank expression. Um, I stole, uh, like your heritage, your ancestry. My tone grew meeker with each suggestion. I'm a sixth generation Australian, she said. Her stance taught her, her tone matter of fact. But I suppose my great great grandfather was Irish. Oh, cool, I said. Thankful my flushed cheeks were camouflaged by my latte skin tones. It was such a beautiful day that I couldn't possibly stay indoors. I walked to a small park behind the home I grew up in. The home my parents sacrificed even their health for. The home we later lost to a family friend who turned out to be a professional conman. I made myself comfortable under the shade of a tree the heavy weight of Jane Austen's complete collection resting on my lap. I flicked through the pages until I found my bookmark. I was only in a chapter or so when in my peripheral vision alerted me to a figure in the near distance. I glanced up, my stranger danger senses flashing after decades of programming after my mother. I took in a deep breath and relaxed my shoulders. Act normal, no big deal. It's a public park. I returned to my book, trying to ignore the figure growing larger in my side view. Hello? I looked up at the face of an elderly man wearing shorts and a tank top. Hey, I said as cheerfully as I could. What you up to? He asked. Oh, just reading a book by my old time favorite author. Oh, and uh, who's that? Jane Austen. He smiled to himself. I looked at his indecisive face, waiting for him to continue. It's a beautiful day today, isn't it? He said. Yeah, such a perfect weather, you know, to be outdoors. <laughs> Why, I thought I'd get some reading done, I said with a chuckle. He smiled again, but fell quiet. He looked at me as if he had more to say. He scratched his head. I raised my eyebrows encouraging him with a grin. Well, uh, you see, he said, shifting from foot to foot, I'm actually part of the neighborhood watch. It took a second to comprehend his meaning. Then I burst into laughter. His face grew red. I feel embarrassed now, he said. I laughed even harder. Nah, it's cool, I said with a shrug. His face brightened. Oh, I, um, I live just across the road. He turned and pointed behind him. See that house? And that's my wife. You're welcome to come visit us anytime. Ah, oh, thank you, I said. Please, come over for a drink. Actually, you don't drink, do you? 
I shook my head. His forehead creased in contemplation before he asked, Do you, uh, do you drink water? (laughs) Ray, I need to tell you something. I looked across the small cafe table at Diana, my friend from uni. She looked down and then away, her face torn. This is so hard. You don't have to tell me if you don't want to. I need to tell someone, just, oh, she groaned. Take your time, I said. My heart beat faster in anticipation. But to to distract, distract myself, I took a sip from my cup of peppermint tea. Diana drew in a deep breath. Okay, she said. I met her eyes with a neutral expression and waited. I'd taken off the hijab. I paused. That's it? I asked. I tried not to look at the headscarf that currently framed her face, understanding she meant she was no longer wearing it full time. Yes. I relaxed my shoulders and smiled. You made it sound like something much, much worse. But I hate this. I've been praying for the strength to wear it again. It's just so hard in Australia. In Singapore, people accept Muslims and all cultures. The hijab is normal there, but in Australia... I listened as Diana went on to explain how the daily stares and verbal abuse had made her anxious about leaving the house. How do you do it? She finally asked. Um, to be honest, I do get negative things happening sometimes, but when I look back, most of the time my experiences are positive. So people don't glare at you or scream things at you every day? I took a deep breath. Um, I racked my brain trying to recall the times. I was sure they would have happened, but the memories were so faint I struggled to think of a specific instance. Actually, I said my eyes alight, the worst thing that's happened was when someone threw a half-empty beer can at me when I was walking home from the bus stop. What? They were in a white Ford Falcon, and it happened so quickly it... It did shock me at first. I abruptly broke into a grin, but I just passed my driving test after failing like three times, so I was watched to on cloud nine to care. I remember saying, oh my God, I can't believe that just happened. But then I laughed it off. Diana just stared at me, speechless at first. You amaze me, Ray. As we walked out of the cafe, my face scrunched. I keep thinking why my negative experiences seem a lot less than yours, I said. If you figure it out, you tell me, she laughed. Ugh, did you just hear that? I looked at her blankly. Hear what? That guy in the car, shouting. I turned my head in the direction she pointed, but the car was long gone by then. No? He called us terrorists, she said, a tremor in her voice. Really? I looked at her, almost sorry I couldn't empathise and share in her experience. Diana was quiet for a moment, a thoughtful look crossing her face. She said, I think I understand now. I understand how you seem so relaxed. 
You don't pay attention to it. Actually, I think you're right, I said, only realising the truth in her statement for the first time. Did you know Muhammad is dead? Rima and I turned our backs to him and perused the open freezer section. My eyes homed in on a two-litre tub of, trickle, of triple chocolate decadence, a necessary purchase for our night in, watching movies at Rima's place. How about this? I asked, picking it up. Rima nodded. I'm happy with that. Did you know Muhammad is dead? The parrot asked again. Moving a step closer, his breath reeked of alcohol. Rima rolled her eyes. Being taller and stronger next to my petite frame, she assumed the role of my bodyguard. She positioned her body between me and the older man and ushered me to look at other snacks. We both let out a sigh of relief when he wandered off. We picked up a bag of chips and made our way to the checkout. And my heart sank. Just our luck. He was being served ahead of us. Pretend not to remember him, but he remembered us. We hurriedly paid so we could make our escape, but his body, his body turned square, blocking our exit at the end of the checkout aisle. Perhaps it was the Palestinian blood that coursed through Rima's veins, but she boldly pushed the man aside and quickly pulled me out into the cold night. Did you know Muhammad is dead? He followed us up the cafe strip squawking the same phrase over and over. Shut up, Rima finally said. And what are you going to do about it? The man boomed. His chest rose in indignation. My heart tripped over its own steps. His face was menacingly close to my friend. I tugged Rima's arm. Let's not provoke him, I said in a hush. Did you know Muhammad is dead? Did you know Muhammad is dead? We tried to lose him, increasing our pace, walking up and down the same street, but perhaps the alcohol increased his stubbornness. I looked up to the heavens on the brink of hopelessness. Then a tall guy swooped in from a cafe across the road, his superhero suit, a white shirt with a black apron and slacks. He swiftly restrained the drunkard with his arms and said, go into the video store. The tension in the blockbuster video was suffocating as Rima and I glanced at some DVDs to pass time. I fiddled with the straps of the plastic bag that carried our ice cream and chips. I tried to act normal, but my face grew warm from the sympathetic gazes around the room. We've called the police, Sarah, the girl at the counter told us. Her expression turned exasperated. They're just taking forever, but I'll call them now. Thanks so much, I said. No worries, she said, attempting a smile. As if he caught our exchange, the man's voice blasted through the open door. Call the police, these bloody Muslims are harassing me. Sarah rolled her eyes. What an idiot. I laughed. I think he's pretty drunk, so he probably won't even remember this in the morning. She nodded and chuckled. I said... Sorry if this is causing you trouble. What? No, it's awful that you're even going through this. I gave her another appreciative smile. Rima and I meandered through the shops. Rima shook her head in disbelief. This is crazy. I can't believe things like this even happen. She looked thoughtful, but I guess I don't wear the hijab. It's a first for me too, 
I said. I avoided looking at the entrance of the store, afraid to catch the eye of the man through the glass. My heart ached thinking about the poor cafe guy, still stuck with him outside. Their voices floated into the room, only a word or two decipherable. At least half an hour passed, but still no police. Sarah motioned us back over. We thought of an idea. There's another exit at the corner. She pointed to the left at the storefront. Where's your car? Just across the road, Rima said. Okay, here's what we'll do. We'll get the guy to distract him. Then, on our cue, we'll let you out. Run straight for your car. Rima and I nodded. Okay. Honestly, thank you so, so much, I said. Sarah shrugged. Don't mention it. Good luck. Rima and I quietly followed one of the other workers to the door. I held my breath as he unlocked it. We all looked at Sarah from across the room. She motioned with her hands. Go. The moment we stepped outside, the drunken man's voice rose to a high scream, hurling profanities as we ran across the street. Rima and I didn't dare look back, but from the corner of my eye, I noticed him break free from the cafe guy's hold. My hands shook as I yelled Rima's car, as I yanked Rima's car door open and threw myself inside. Rima immediately locked the doors and floored the accelerator. It wasn't until his screams became a faint background sound that my heartbeat slowed. Well, Rima sighed. As we neared Rima's flat, my heart felt strangely full, thinking about the kindness of a random stranger leaving his work on witnessing our distress. Then there was the entire staff at Blockbuster Video. I became conscious of the old container sitting on my lap. My face brightened and my mouth salivated. Man, I cannot wait to dig into this. Years later, when I realised the tactics I developed to master the skin game, laughing it off, feigning ignorance until the discriminatory comments became white noise, Diana and I caught up again. She had moved back to Singapore to support her father in his company while starting her own successful business. She took out her phone to show me her business Instagram page. I sell these mementos for special occasions, mostly weddings, but um, also some Islamic gatherings. Ooh. She opened a few posts to give me a closer look. The items ranged from beautifully designed prayer mats to custom prayer beads. It was by accident, actually, she said. My cousin and I wanted to start a business, but we didn't know what. It was when one of my other cousins got married. She ordered these cupcakes as mementos. It made me think, this is actually a good idea. So we decided to do something similar. I looked at her with admiration. It's so amazing. She shrugged. Yeah, it's okay. She said with a laugh. During our meal, Diana brought up the lunch we'd had years before. Ray, I want to thank you for your help that time. I was at a really low point in my life, she said. It was my turn to shrug, but I was happy seeing her empowered again. It's a pleasure. We all go through our challenges, I said looking across the table at her oval face, framed by a plain pastel-coloured scarf. 
which I had experimented with different styles over the years, she wore the hijab in a traditional style, which I associated with her in our uni days. Yes. Cool. Perfect. My Quit Mate by Jay Anderson. The fairy lights he'd strung up along the lip of the roof of his courtyard flickered as the sun dived towards a river hidden by stacks of townhouses and apartments. Smoke from his cigarette, perched between the splintered edges of the fingernails on his fore and middle finger, curled away and wrapped itself around his hand, his arm, the frayed ends of the hair that met his shoulders before carrying itself into the windless air. He scrolled through photos of friends and family on Facebook on his phone as he absentmindedly filled in the seconds between each drag, each inhale, each exhale, each sip of sugar and milk coffee in the gym, seeds, weeds and trees mug. He remembered when Harry had given it to him with three others, each identical. Dad had made too many for the business and, you don't have enough mugs around here, Harry had said. He tried to recall the last time he'd seen Harry, a year ago. Shortly after Harry's graduation, before Harry moved to Kalgoorlie for a job as an environmental engineer. Now this was their relationship an inconstant selection of photos on Facebook exchanged with the world, not with each other specifically. His phone hummed in his hand. It was from my quit mate. Focus on all of the health benefits you are experiencing as a result of quitting. A month ago, he downloaded the app onto his phone, hoping this, his sixth attempt at quitting, would work. The app was supposed to ensure that along with a packet of Nicorette mini lozenges, a new savings account in his bank for what would have been his weekly spend on Bond Street menthols and the beginnings, beginnings of a relationship with a nice guy who hated smokers, hated them like he hated his dad who had smoked a pack a day, developed emphysema and died, my quitmate promised to get him smoke-free and stay smoke-free. To do this, it would send him a notification or two every day. For the first month, the app, along with the bank account, the lozenges, and the relationship worked. He didn't smoke a single cigarette for the whole month of November. Brush your teeth. You'll feel better and it'll give you time to ride out your craving. He bought Colgate Advanced Whitening Toothpaste. Day after day, his teeth whitened. He smiled more despite the visible resin on his front tooth. Stressed or anxious? You could listen to music. Spend time by yourself or do some laps at the pool. He started swimming at Belmont Leisureplex. And as each week passed, he swam a few extra laps each time he went. And he felt his arms grow stronger as they became, as, as they beat the water, stroke after stroke. To keep your hands busy, use an online shopping app to buy something with the money you've saved. <laughs> he bought a new jacket an expensive red denim jacket. And he began to wear it exclusively, convinced that all his other jackets smelt of stale cigarettes. When he started smoking again in December, 
But he didn't think of it as starting, just a, a mistake, a slip up. The savings stopped building up as the slip ups continued, the lozenges ran out and he didn't replace them and he didn't like how little he liked himself. But my quit mate kept sending him messages. Buy a new bottle of perfumer aftershave. Does it smell better with your improved senses? He bought a bottle of Eternity Flame by Calvin Klein because the sales clerk at Maya told him it had a smoky, smoky quality, which he decided would blend well with a lingering scent of cigarette smoke on his body. <laughs> Book in to get your teeth cleaned. They'll look and feel better. He had a woman do an in-home teeth whitening and afterwards lick the top front row of teeth between drags from his cigarette. If you can, get plenty of rest, your body is adjusting to a new lifestyle. He stopped waking up early to go to the pools and slept in. Slept more. So, this was his relationship with my quitmate. A series of messages because of a lie he refused to correct. Need some motivation? But think about how much time you used to spend smoking. The sun was already pressing heat into the grey pavers of his backyard at 8am when he got the message. Lately, the messages came more frequently than they had over the last 12 months, and now they always came when he was smoking. But he always was in the backyard smoking these days. He had bought an umbrella for the ash grey metallic outdoor table setting from Bunnings because it got too hot to sit out from 11 in the morning onwards. He closed Facebook and opened the My Quit Mate app, unable to remember the time he had. Are you still smoke free? He had forgotten that I'd asked him that question every time he opened the app, like it was waiting for him to fail. Every cigarette dragged guilt into his body that turned into sticky shame, so he had stopped opening the app and his relationship with my equipment became nothing more than the increasing number of messages it sent him. The phone rested between folds of fat from his stomach, which was dotted with unruly hair. He wasn't in great shape especially since he'd stopped swimming, but he didn't realise he was not in this great shape. He had made a mental note to drink less orange juice and cordial while smoking. My quit mate came to life on his screen. Numbers, graphics, interactive features. It told him that he had avoided 12,502 milligrams of tar. He had saved $2,232 and was currently 357 days smoke free. When he engaged the outline of a human body on the screen, it told him how his body was recovering. After two weeks, tobacco stains on your fingertips are fading. He glanced at the yellow stains on the fore and middle fingertips of his hand and then looked away quickly, focused on the kangaroo paw and the outdoor table instead. The sun had been beating it too hard and fast. Now all the leaves had dried out, a strong breeze and they'd flake into the wind. He got up and moved all the plants into the shade, even though he knew that none of them, not even the natives, would be able to handle the unnatural summer this year. While he smoked his second ciggy for the morning, he took himself through the distract me section of my quit mate so that he could play the fruit sorter game. Pineapples, bananas, apples, mandarins, oranges, they all had to be sorted into the right basket by nimble fingers dancing around the glass on the phone screen. He hadn't played in a while, but he was good at these sorts of games because he'd spent the better half of his adolescence wrapped in the dim glow from his computer screen in the early hours of the morning playing role-playing games. He was moments away from reaching an all-time high score on Fruit Sorter when the app closed down. He opened it again, hoping that the game would reload, but the app went into update mode. 
When it loaded and opened, he realized that all of the stats had reverted. Zero milligrams of tar avoided, zero dollars saved, zero days smoke-free. He closed the app, pulled his head out of his T-shirt and lit a cigarette with a rasping kitsch, kitsch, kitsch of the baby blue Bic lighter. His phone buzzed against the glass of the table, rattling the mug of coffee next to it, and he grabbed his phone to read the notification. You'll be a better person after having quit smoking. Over the last 357 days, he'd seen every message more than once, but this one was new. They had probably installed a new set of messages with the update. Over the next few days, each time he sat in his courtyard scrolling through Facebook with Tureen Drags, my quitmate sent him a message. Quitting is a process. You don't have to get it right straight away, but you have to keep trying. The messages became more frequent, popping up two or three times while he was scrolling and making it difficult for him to concentrate on the friends and family and former friends and acquaintances sharing snippets of their lives on social media. Then, one evening, while the fairy lights clanged against the lip of the roof of his unit and the ash met the pavement beneath his feet, the notification from my quitmate read, you can't keep smoking. He opened the app, his face illuminated by the harsh glow of the app, even though he turned the lighting on his phone to the lowest meter. The statistics were set at zero milligrams of tar avoided, zero dollars saved, zero days smoke-free. Confused, he closed the app and reopened it, but the stats were the same. He navigated through the app settings to his profile and hit my quit date. He tried to set it for yesterday, December 9th, but the words were colored light gray and he couldn't select it the app would only let him select tomorrow's date. So he did. The next morning, under a cloudless sky, he trampled one of the green weeds, reaching through the gaps between the pavers as he made his way to the chair in the yard. When he lit his cigarette, my quitmate sent him a notification. You need to quit smoking. When he checked the stats, they were still at zero, and his my quit date had been reset again. The messages from my quitmate started to become more and more severe over the next few days. Before the update, they were words of encouragement. Now, they told him he was doing well, that he should reward himself even though he was lying. Now, now they were as ominous as the burning summer sky. You can't afford to keep smoking. Well, this was true, his bank app approved it. Every time you smoke, you shorten your lifespan by 14 minutes and there's so much you want to do. When he saw this message, he remembered the to-do list he had created in the app as a distraction when he had quit for the sixth time. So he deleted the to-do list. When he was walking to the corner store after the sun had set, as he had every Saturday evening for the past few months, his phone buzzed in his hand and he flinched. The street was empty, but the houses nearly wall to wall along the street pressed into him. The carcass of a jacaranda tree that the local council hadn't cleared yet cast spindly shadows from the muted glow of a street lamp overhead. Nearly all of his notifications were from my quitmate now. Isn't there a better way you could be spending your Saturday nights? When he was on campus at his university for summer school, smoking behind the arts building as he had on and off for the past three years while he completed his engineering degree, my quitmate messaged him. You're not allowed to smoke here. <laughs> the campus had been smoke-free for decades, but when Harry, who had been assigned his mentor through the student buddy program, had shown him around campus, he took him to the back of the arts building and lit a cigarette with a grin. 
It's a smoke-free campus like most places, but a fair few of the art students smoke, so if you need one, come here. Oh, just be careful of the security guards. They can fine you, Harry had said, between drags. He opened Facebook on his phone and navigated to Harry's profile to check if his relationship status was still single. It was, so he closed the app. He still had 15 minutes until his next class, so he decided to smoke another one. The orange ring at the tip of the cigarette shone as he exhaled, and then, from behind him, a security guard approached him. It's illegal to smoke on campus? The guard said before slapping him with a $500 fine. Now, since he was paying for it anyway, he finished his cigarette while the security guard shook his head and walked away. As he bent down towards the pavement beneath his feet to ash it out, he received another notification from my quitmate. I told you, you couldn't smoke here. That night, he found himself looking at Harry's profile again as he smoked his post-meal dart. That's what Harry used to call them, post-meal darts. Nothing like a ciggy after a big meal, he always said. He thought about messaging Harry, but didn't. Another message from my quitmate. If you keep smoking, you'll die. It was at this point he decided to delete the app. He didn't know how it was possible, but the app knew he was lying. The messages of encouragement never came anymore and he no longer enjoyed his relationship with my quitmate. So, in his backyard, cigarette lit and in hand, a warming mug of orange juice sweating droplets of water onto the glass surface of the table, he deleted the app. When it blinked out of existence, he took a long drag and released it slowly, savouring the relief of it. The next morning, he woke up between rust-coloured sheets that smelled softly of cigarettes and reached for his phone. Seven in the morning and it was already 28 degrees. He decided to get up quickly and get to the coffee so he could enjoy it warm in the backyard before everything gets too hot, before he could dry out like the kangaroo paw. After blinking away the sleep caught in the corner of his eyes, he saw it. A notification from my quitmate. Update complete! <laughs> he opened it to a welcome screen that promised a variety of new features that would make sure he quit and stayed smoke-free. He closed the app, put on his dressing gown and headed to the coffee machine. Jim's seeds, weeds and trees mug filled and in hand. He went into the backyard with his pack of Bond Street menthol. He opened Facebook on his phone and with his right hand started scrolling and lit the cigarette perched between chapped lips with his left, ready for the mintiness of it, mixed with the caffeine from his mug to bring him into the day. But when he lit the cigarette and took the first drag, he felt a minute sharp pain in the fingertips of his right hand, like an electric shock created by static between clothing, but slightly worse. He dropped his phone instinctively, peered down at it there on the warming pavers and saw a notification from my quitmate flash on the screen. Quitting can be a painful process. Short fiction writer Belinda Hermawan takes a slightly different approach to the familiar tales of FIFO workers. This is her story simply called Fly In, Fly Out from the collection Wave After Wave. 
Tina doesn't move immediately after hearing the sudden crunch, the thump of rock on wood. Violence is a foreign sound in Cottesloe. The salty air often fails to carry eruptive noise, the atmosphere too relaxed. In the hall, she treads softly on the Jarrah floorboards around shards of frosted glass that once comprised a panel in the front door. The weapon is a craggy grey rock, the size of two fists. Outside, there's yelling. Her neighbours, the Bensons. A child starts to cry. Seconds later, another joins in. She opens the door an inch at a time, its arc sweeping the shards into a line like salt on the rim of a cocktail glass. Three steps is enough for Tina to see. Tomo and Marie face off on their verge, their stances that of boxers, only with hands fashioned into arrows, not fists. They point, they jab. The two children hug meters away. A removal truck sits in the Benson's driveway, two workers in high-vis vests trying to load a jet ski into the back. On the other side of the street, Kathy is at her window. She nods. Tina nods back, just as Tomo's voice cracks like thunder. It's not my fucking fault the boom's over. You should have begged for another job, Marie cries. What are we going to do? The flash comes after the thunder. Tina shields her eyes with her forearm, crouching until she realises it's the morning sun ricocheting off a beer can that's rolled from an upturned esky. Tomo growls as he rushes for the can and hurls it at his house. Then another and another. The cans explode with a thwack. Tina expects the smell of beer to permeate, but it doesn't. Glass crunches under her shoe as she retreats. A police car turns in from Grant Street with a single pop of the siren. Tina has lived in the renovated Federation cottage on Broom Street since Samuel's parents financed it as a wedding gift. Back then, she worried she wouldn't fit in. A blow-in from the southern suburbs. Living in Cottesloe was different to visiting, as she had when she and Samuel were dating. Residents seemed to have their own frequency, a whistle only they could hear. They are, and always will be, guard dogs, ears pricked, barking to the council, biting at any threat to their mansions or sensibilities. She learned the rules, the social codes. Still, she wrote jokes to her family and friends that the suburb only has enormous verges so people can judge you comfortably from afar, their expectations as high as the Norfolk pines dotting the coastline. <laughs> of course, it's easier to laugh from the outside. She remembers feeling marooned in the first year when Samuel started the grad program in Sydney. In the second year, 
She figured they'd be better off moving east than him flying back on the weekends, but he kept insisting the stint in Sydney was temporary, that he'd grown up in Cot, never wanted to leave, and would find a banking job in Perth when the time was right. Plus, his friends' wives liked Tina, as did the neighbourhood wives who admired the way she dressed, deferred, doted. For Cathy, Tina was extra special. A good babysitter to her son, Luke, and his older sister, Lucy. Tina ensured they had home-cooked meals and were taken to and from extracurriculars, drama rehearsals for Lucy, and after-school and Saturday sport for Luke. Tina also helped out with homework, a task she enjoyed, more stimulating than her two shifts a week at David Jones, which had been her uni job before she turned down the big four accounting terms, firms. Kathy paid Tina in social capital, an investment to be drawn upon when she herself is a mum at these schools. Never too early to lay groundwork, Kathy said. No offence, but you're from the sticks and went to a public school. Make connections and they'll forgive you. When the Bensons moved in three and a half years ago, Tina made sure she was only friendly enough. Their identity was bellowed by Marie from their backyard. What are we, Tomo? The sonorous response from Tomo was so forceful that the leaves on the roses Tina was trimming shuddered. Cashed up bogans! Yeah, Mazza, this is the life. Tomo was a fly-in, fly-out worker up on the mines driving three-kilometre-long iron ore trains. He'd been earning an inflated salary for years, enough to buy a house near the beach. He bought Marie a shining white Range Rover, which she used to shuttle the children to a life-upgraded private primary schools, after-school activities and designer brands at Claremont Quarter. When Tomo was rostered off on the school holidays, they headed to Bali, returning with their tans topped up and souvenirs for Tina and her husband to say thanks for collecting their mail and putting their bins out. Your quality, Tina, Marie said, handing her a batik sarong and a bintang singlet. <laughs> Where's Sammy boy, eh? Still in Sydney for work? Tina had trained herself not to grimace, as if there were wires in her cheeks to keep them taut. Yes. He's a FIFO, like Tomo. Yous are just like us. <laughs> Tina looked across the road, thankful Kathy's curtains were drawn closed. With the police photographs taken, Tina finally sweeps up the glass in the front hall and disposes of the rock in the wheelie bin. Kathy comes over with Luke, who's still in his uniform from Saturday morning sport, to which he drove himself. Some days Tina can hardly believe he's already 18. 
She met him when he was 12 and now he's over six feet tall with his father's chiseled jawline and deepened voice. Kathy carries Luke's toolbox, an incongruous look with her styled blonde tresses and full face of makeup. Luke has plywood for a temporary patch-up job on the door, spare supplies from a school project. I'll get this sorted for you, Mrs H. His toothy smile hasn't changed over the years, and for this, Tina is grateful. She wonders if her own boy, when he is conceived, will smile in that same carefree way. A pang of impatience cuts across her belly. She swallows, holding down the absence, chokes off thoughts of fooling Samuel by going off the pill, knowing that a life conceived in a lie is not a good start. Oh, thanks, Luke. You're a gem. Kathy harumps while Luke beams. I'm such a nice mum, letting him take woodwork, a trade, <laughs> when it won't count towards his ATAR. She turns back to Tina. So... Your husband got delayed coming back. He might not be back till next weekend. Missed his flight last night due to a meeting that ran long. Kathy barrels on, not noticing how Tina had twitched. Right, right, well, that's business. Anyway, same old story with the Bogans, isn't it, teens? So much money and they blow it all, no savings whatsoever. Then the good times end and they can't pay their bills. That idiot can't afford to be throwing stuff at his house and yours. Tina shrugs. I guess he just snapped. <laughs> Clearly. She nods to the door. And this in a safe neighbourhood. Oh, they need to go back to Armadale or Midland or wherever they came from, end of the train line places. Luke snorts. <laughs> like you've ever taken the train, Mum. <laughs> Kathy glances in the direction of the Benson's house. For a moment, her face muscles relax and Tina wonders if she's empathising, but she says, I wonder what they'll get for the Range Rover. Tina doesn't offer a guess, afraid it'll be implausible. She understands why people urge her to reject people like Kathy, telling her she doesn't need to be friends with her neighbours. But Tina has come too far. Becoming a Kathy is her only option, her reward for giving up a career and waiting so patiently in a barren home. Yet at the same time, she worries about finally having children and being deemed not good enough by the women around town. Tina carries this anxiety like sand after a beach visit. Every time she thinks she's shaken it off, she finds a grain in her hair, under her nails, in her navel. The western suburbs take their schools very seriously. 
a denomination that will set you up for life, even with Luke graduating and grandchildren not yet on the horizon. Tina knows Kathy will keep herself busy. Alumni commitments are lifelong. Kathy's husband, Mike, is one of the state's leading anaesthetists and a fixture of the Old Boys Association. Despite graduating 17 years earlier than Samuel, Mike treats him like an old friend. Old friends are too honest. Tina overheard the pair talking outside the front window after a late night at the yacht club. Mate, Tina has been a godsend. Kathy can't handle any kind of stress. Samuel chuckled. I'll take that as a thank you. Where do you find her again? Tina, I mean, did you say uni? Uh, yeah, yeah, commerce. She got offered grads from uh, EY, PwC, Deloitte's, but we talked about it and she'd rather have kids, which we'll do when I quit M M Macquarie. <laughs> oh, no, you won't quit. That's where the money is. No, I will, I swear. Just not now. But how can you stand being away from her, Mike asked. Do you have a girlfriend in Sydney then? Oh, no. <laughs> Teens is the only one for me. Well, then sell up. Move over east. What's the point of a trophy wife if you leave her on the shelf on the other side of the country? Well, I don't want to move. I want my kids to have the same childhood I had. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Admit it. You like making her desperate. You control everything. Money, house, sex. You own her 100%. Tina dashed away from the living room, climbing the stairs two at a time. But when she entered the bedroom, the conversation replayed in her head and she used the wall to prop herself up, leaning on her arm as a keening sound increased in volume in the distance. It was the train on the Fremantle line straining to stop at Grant Street Station. For a moment there, Tina thought the wail was coming from herself. The weeks get underway. Tina finds that Broom Street is on guard, not only because of the Bensons, it's the biannual Verge collection time. Anything decent disappears within hours. Furniture, appliances, building materials, tools. When the glaziers come on Monday afternoon, Tina has to stand guard on the verge in case anyone thinks the ute is offering free pickups. <laughs> that evening, Samuel calls and promises he'll be back on Friday night. Tina considers complaining, but her careful consideration morphs into an extended silence. You'll be right, he says. Nothing else will happen. The Bogans are leaving. Tina wants to scream. He wasn't even listening to her silence. She predicts he'll return with a gift, probably jewellery, bought with the salary he won't relinquish. 
He'll take her out for dinner somewhere fancy, ply her with wine and say once again that he's earning all this money now so they can afford to send three kids to elite schools and upgrade to a bigger house. She is not predicting. She is repeating. Has done for six years stretched to her limit and sent hurtling back to the start, a measuring tape retracting. On Thursday evening, Luke helps Tina haul out a dresser from her guest room. In return, she helps him lift an aged beige, beige couch, upholstered with roses onto his family's verge. They set the couch so it's facing the street, with Tina wondering if the faded blooms are to anyone's taste. Just as the pair finished, two passers-by relieved Tina's verge of the dresser, almost walking into the Benson's mailbox while they grapple with it. The Benson's verge remains uncluttered. I guess they're not throwing anything out, Tina says. <laughs> Unless everything's been repossessed, Luke says. Hey, has Tomo apologised to you yet? The indignation in Luke's voice warms Tina's heart. Oh, no, haven't seen him. Luke folds his arms. Not good enough. I know the woman and kids are still in there. Mum said they come out for school. Tina nods and says, speaking of, best get back to study before your parents tell me off for distracting you before exams. When Luke turns to go inside... Tina hesitates to clap him on the back for fear his sturdiness will confirm he's already no longer a child. And so she returns to her own door, thinks of the rock, wonders if it's her womb fossilised. On Friday night, Tina goes through the motions, except this time she is mute. Samuel is patient at first, acknowledges her frustration, tops up her glass. She persists, opens her mouth to consume food and wine, but not excuses. The clock starts on his patience. The clock on hers is broken. At 11, she arranges herself on their bed enticingly, wearing nothing but a new diamond necklace. Her limbs are loose, wine sloshes in her head. She is ashamed that even in mocking his routine, she's aroused. She hasn't been touched in two weeks. Samuel pulls at the knot of his tie and then rips out a cufflink hole. He pitches it across the room where it ricochets off the leather armchair and lands with a thud on the carpet. I said I was sorry about last week, teens, he said, voice tight like a guitar string. You're being too harsh with this silent treatment. They are the inverse of each other. Her with a rage in her resignation and him resigning to rage. I'm not angry, he adds. It's just that I work so hard for you, for us. 60-hour weeks, sometimes 70. You have it easy back here. Don't you think you're being a little bit ungrateful? She tries to hum to, to see if her larynx is already rusted. 
she crackles, says, What's the point of a trophy wife if you leave her on a shelf on the other side of the country? He places a hand on her inner thigh, coaxing her legs open, speaks on his in-breath. But she is already outside on the couch, on the verge, the rose blooms turning into wine stains beneath her, waiting to be carried away. In the Green by Rahanati A. Jalil. This is from the collection To Hold the Clouds. If his voice had a colour, it would be black, contrasting his hard white features. His stern blue eyes bulged beneath the creases between his brows. My name is Constable Williams, he said. As you can see, I have two cameras that will capture every word you say. I've recorded your speed at 94. Why were you doing 94 in a 60 zone? Huh? 60? Zakia swallowed as she stared at his four eyes, two suspended on either side of his helmet. Uh, I... Um... It was like his words. His accusation reached her mind in slow motion, imposing time for her to conjure a response. Um, I, I was uh, daydreaming. Sorry. A surprised look. Oh. His features softened as he looked at her puss in boots gaze. I'll just uh, write you a ticket then. His tone teetered on uncertainty. He turned towards his checkered motorcycle. Zakia's heart knocked loudly against her chest. She gripped her steering wheel tighter, willing the cold plastic to absorb the tremors in her hands. She drove this route every day to work, had the speed limits memorised in her subconscious, clearly her downfall. She leaned back into her seat and sighed. A deep intake of breath when the officer returned to her open window. He peeled off the white and blue layers from the poisonous tritone sandwich. It's a hefty fine, he said gently. He avoided direct eye contact. How much? Eight hundred dollars and six demerit points. He handed her the sheets. It's because of the roadworks, he added quietly then gave her a moment to absorb it all. There was an unkind kindness in his silence. You can pay it in person this week at any Australia post. Okay, Zakia said, staring at the, flank, at the figure blankly, numb. 
Yet what else could be done but trace the three digits with her eyes? The handwriting looked tired, overworked, almost illegible, almost. If she could somehow unsee her name, her licence number, or at least one zero, Zakia turned her attention back to the officer. Sorry, I, am, I missed your name. His jawline hardened and his authoritative tone returned. Constable Williams. You'll see my name on the fine. I'm Zakia, she said with a smile. Thank you. Have a nice day. A bewildered look. Oh. He gave her an uncertain smile. Thanks. He took a step back as she wound up her window. As Akia pulled back onto the freeway, eyes constantly darting back to the speedometer, she raised an eyebrow. Why did she thank him exactly? Somewhere in her subconscious, a memory tugged. Details hazy. An issue with her bank. Yes, a problem with the account she had called customer support about. Not once, multiple times on consecutive days. It was all very frustrating, but she had remained cool and firm while treating the workers with kindness. Not only was her issue resolved, they had credited her 20 bucks as an appeasement. 20 bucks, a nice meal, a night out at the cinema. Maybe it was wishful thinking, but she believed treating people well, especially in frustrating situations, attracted good karma. Or maybe it was since she had started working in retail, on the receiving end of disgruntled customers, that she'd grown a new layer of empathy. Work! Zakia glanced at her time on the dashboard and grimaced. She should have started work five minutes ago. Oh. She looked at the phone perched against her air vent. No, don't even think about it. She'd already lost $800. She pulled a face. Oh, $800. A new mobile phone. Return tickets overseas. A designer handbag. Zakia sighed out, of, out loud again. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, but you need to stop speeding. She could hear her mum nag. But no... There had to be more to it. Car. Must be car related. What's happening relating to my car? Zakia's eyes lit up. The accident. She turned to the passenger seat. Her handbag. Her notebook. But jerked her attention back to the road. Zakia drove up the ramp that led to the designated staff parking at Garden City Shopping Centre. Now half an hour late... It was another few minutes. She flipped through her journal, eyes skimming the top of each line page until she found the heading. Money. Car accident. Insurance quote, $3,000 to fix damage. Car value, $1,000 to $2,000. Proposed payout, $1,500. Actual cost to fix, mates rates, $500. Profit, $1,000. She fished for a pen from her bag, scrolled the date and added speeding fine, $800. Balance to date equals $1,000 minus $800 equals $200 profit. Her lips curved upwards. 
She shoved the book bag in her bag and bounced into work. She slowed her steps at the sight of her manager and bent her head. Kelly, she said meekly. I'm so sorry I'm late. Got stopped by the police for speeding and didn't want to risk another fine calling you, so I... Oh, Sakia, that's crap. How much did you get done for? $800 and six demerits. $800? That's crazy. Zakia shrugged. Yeah, it sucks, but my bad for daydreaming. And thankfully, I'm still ahead. Kelly frowned. Ahead? Zakia smothered a smile. Long story, she said, glancing at her watch. Tell you later. Zakia shielded herself from the slap of cold air, pulling her fluffy coat tighter. Her phone vibrated in her pocket. Speeding, fine, due, it reminded her. She wrinkled her nose. She hated, hated losing money. But at least she was still in the green. She approached her beat-up Toyota Corolla and her heart sank. A small piece of paper fastened to the windscreen wiper waved back and forth like a spoilt child. Please let it be a flyer. Please let it be a flyer. Please let it be a flyer. She chanted the words under her breath as if they could manifest into her reality. City of Perth, it greeted her in her favourite colour. Her shoulders slumped. She glanced down at the narrow page with a bated breath. <sighs> Only $60. Still in the green. Thank you. <clears throat> this is Sparta by Costa Lucas from the podcast, This is Sparta. My name is Costa. I'm an Australian man of Greek origin. I'm 34. For the better part of 10 years, my work has involved me listening to, reading, researching and understanding stories that, make, that take a lot of bravery to tell. Those of extremism and terrorism in Australia. Five and a half years ago, I was in a hospital bed recovering from gastric sleeve surgery. When I talk to people about this experience, they, I, I get the same two questions. Question one, which one is that? Is, is that the band? No. The surgery I had was the one where they poke five holes into your abdominal cavity and remove at least 70% of your stomach, leaving only a sleeve. That's why they call it that gross, I know. Question two. How long did it take? The answer to this innocent question is actually not as straightforward as it sounds. The, better answer, the best answer I can offer is that it depends on what you count as the start and end point. There are just too many parts. The procedure itself, about 90 minutes. Then recovery in hospital took about two extra days. You know that Salvador Dali painting called Sleep? It's the one with the deformed humanoid head held up by flimsy stilts amongst a psychedelic desert. That's what I felt like for two days. 
in suspended animation with my own body just precariously floating. Until I got the hiccups, that is. Oh my God, the hiccups. I have never in my life experienced a pain like it. I can still feel my cut up stomach convulsing against the sutures. If there was ever a moment I had thought, what the fuck have I just done to myself? It was then, but I digress. In answer to the original question, there was also three or so months it took to learn how to physically chew food again. Also, if we start from the pre-surgery fasting period, that adds another fortnight to the process. To say that any of these were the start or end point feels misleading. But being highly conscious of the fact that this question is usually asked by someone not inviting me to pour my heart out, I'll choose a combination of these starting and ending points. If you really want to know though, I would say the starting point for me was when I was in the depths of despair at my psychologist's office about a year and a half prior. As a chronic sufferer of depression, anxiety and everything in between, I was in a really bad way, even for me. I don't remember what was bothering me in particular that day, I, I, I was just crying. I had a tension headache from the straining of my face which was burning, my nose had run out of mucus and my eyes their tears. It was my hour of the month where it all came out, but I was fresh out of fluids, fresh out of vitality. On that particular day, I was bum-rushed by every little demon I had out of a job, back home from a failed stint in Canberra, a failed career change, failed attempts at relationships and convoluted friendships left, right and centre that I felt like I had to be a husk of myself to live within. That time I almost joined a cult. Not to mention all the while wearing this oversized 170 kilogram fucking fat suit while trying to navigate trying to be a functioning human. Even if it was as hazy as to what exactly was bothering me, I do remember thinking that my weight was getting in the way of me leading this wonderful life. But thinking that just made the demons louder. How did I get to this point? How have I managed to get it wrong for so long? How have I been so bad at life when I have been given every opportunity? How humiliating was it that I was failing at something as basic as keeping myself alive? What type of a man was I that I couldn't do anything without help? Or what type of partner would I be to someone if I couldn't do all of these things for myself? To say I was over it is an understatement. I wanted to explode my body off of me, but even that required too much effort and know-how. I was really ready to give up, to shut down and let the elements take the course without resisting. Even thinking about it again makes my world feel black around the edges. But somehow, reaching me through the noise was a simple invitation that I hadn't ever, ever considered before. The gentle voice of my psychologist simply said to me, have you ever considered that the possibility that even if you haven't always made the best decisions, you still did the best under the circumstances? I lost a breath. I became trapped in stillness and my ears wrapped themselves around his words. He continued, considering all of the things you say you want to change about yourself, you're fighting an uphill battle all alone. Have you ever considered that getting surgery is not an act of weakness, but an act of love for yourself for the first time in your life? In that moment, I wouldn't say I found serenity, but the volume of everything got turned way the fuck down. I was stone cold, maybe even steely. 
I composed myself and left, silent but more resolute than I had been in a long time. Despite what the trainers on The Biggest Loser or some alpha turbo on Instagram or some middle-aged shock jocks say about how fat people should just feel about themselves, it was in that moment that I realised I couldn't make a good decision for myself if I didn't love myself first. And in my case, love was the most radical thing I could do. It's the most radical thing anyone can do sometimes. I would learn that as I got older. I wouldn't say it was an instant decision, it was more of a tattoo decision. If you still want to do it after a few months, maybe you should just get it. So I did. After sitting on it for a while and consuming as much as I could about what was involved, I called my GP and asked him to help me get the ball rolling. So if I had to pick an actual starting point, it's there. That radical act of self-love that saved my life in the short term and the long term. But if we're talking about how long something took, it implies an endpoint, doesn't it? So when would you say the procedure ended? The truth is, it doesn't. Even if that moment set in motion a series of events that would change my life for the better, what I was yet to realise was just how close my demons such a decision would get me. This is my Sparta, because it is here, on the inside, where the true battles are fought. The quest to both love and conquer myself is forever. Thank you so much. That is all we have for you tonight. Um, thank you to Grace Chow, Darius Williams, fabulous reading. They and the emerging writers that you have heard tonight are the ones to keep your eye open for. Um, that also concludes the whole of uh, Centre for Stories Sidewalks for 2020. Thank you all for coming um, and thank you to all the generous sponsors. Uh, downstairs, grab a drink for the after party. Uh, this has been Lit Live. I am Sarah McNeil and on the table over there you will find brochures for our next event which is the Vagina Monologues at Fringe World. Please come and see it. Um, and also on the table over there are the two books from, who, from the stories that you have heard tonight. So buy those, take a brochure, see you downstairs for a drink. Thank you so much. <laughs>